I'm David Mosscrop, and welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. On October 21st, Canadians will cast their ballots and return a government in Canada's 43rd general election. As we speak, the race is very close. The incumbent Liberals and the opposition Conservatives are within a few points of one another in most polls. The New Democrats are enjoying some momentum, the Bloc Québécois is resurgent in Quebec, and the Green Party enjoys a good chance at electing more members of Parliament than they ever have. Some observers have suggested that this is an election about nothing. Others have suggested that the chief contenders, the Liberals and the Conservatives, offer the same thing. In each case, the observers are incorrect. Today, my guest Kevin Milligan, a professor of economics at the University of British Columbia, will help us sort out precisely why those observers are wrong by answering the question, does it matter who wins the election? So let's start with a spoiler. It does matter who wins the election, and it matters for a few reasons, but today we'll focus mostly on affordability and taxation. Now, with that said, we'll go right to Kevin. Why does it matter, given what we've seen so far, who wins the election? I think it matters for two reasons. One is that the promises that we've seen and, and the platforms that we've seen do have some starkly different approaches. Whether you look at the climate change action, whether you look at taxation, there really is uh, you know, some spread uh, across the parties and how they're approaching these things. That's just the platform, and, and we've all seen that and seen lots of debate about that. But what we haven't perhaps heard enough of is the fact that it matters beyond the platform who we elect. And that's because every day in the building formerly known as Langevin, the prime minister's office, in that building, they make 100 decisions. And those decisions are not things that were foreseen in a platform from the previous election. And so you want to make sure that you get people in there who are competent, who uh, take advice, and who make sound decisions. So that's something that no platform is going to help you with. And I think that's why things like the debates and a lot of the discussion of the character of different uh, leaders is actually not just trivial stuff that people are using to avoid the platform. I think it is actually central because it matters a lot who we put in that office. Well, I mean, I, I could talk about character all day and I have some pretty strong thoughts about it, in fact. But, but okay, so... Judgment, then, is, is absolutely central. So, I mean, let's start with platforms and then come around at the end uh, today to talk a little bit about judgment and specifically how it relates to economic management. But before we get to that, what about costing? So the, the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, has, has a service this time around. They can cost platforms. They can be a heuristic, a mental shortcut for the population to talk about whether or not the platforms are reliable. From what you've seen so far, who passes the PBO test and, and who fails it? I think this new uh, arrangement of having the Parliamentary Budget Office provide costings of individual budget items or, or platform items is actually a great innovation. Not everyone agrees with me on that, but I, I think it does because it provides a common baseline for these discussions. In elections past, what you see is a party comes up with a proposal and they put it out and it just immediately devolves into an expert numbers fight. And those are really boring and and uh, uh, involve a lot of mess and ends up just being squid ink thrown in every direction. And it's really hard for people to get a sense of what's right and what's wrong. Because people try to find small mistakes and then they make a mistake and trying to find a mistake and it just goes in circles. 
Right. Wait, wait what's, uh, the, what's the argument, if I, just really quickly, what's the argument against having the PBO cost the budget, uh, the platforms? So the argument I've seen from some is that because it has the you know, incrementer of parliament, as the parliamentary budget office, uh, it puts too much weight on their analysis, and they are uh, fallible, uh, and they make mistakes, and having all your eggs in one basket is, is, is wrong. That's the argument against. The reason how I counter that argument is we should not think about the PBO as the, you know, the, the, the voice of God here. They're providing a baseline. If you want to you know, um, go beyond that, you just then have to justify it. You have to say, look, PBO said this tax measure is going to raise $2 billion. We actually think it's going to raise $3 billion, and here's why. Now, if you come up with some good justifications, I, just, I, no, I take that. I think I'll listen to that argument. But I think providing that baseline of what kind of range we're talking about here this really allowed this election to move beyond a lot of number fights. Right, because also the Institute for Fis uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa is also doing uh, an assessment of platforms, right? Yeah, that's right. Now what they're doing is looking at the thing as a whole. The Parliamentary Budget Office is looking line by line and saying, you know, how much is a capital gains tax change going to bring in? How much right. is a wealth tax going to bring in? And they try to do the best job they can. Now, what the, what the uh, Kevin Page's shop at the University of Ottawa, at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy, what they're doing is looking at the whole thing. Do you have a plan to implement this? Is the overall fiscal framework of how you think the deficit's going to land, does that make sense? Is it sustainable? And right. I think that both parts of this are very valuable things we've seen in this election. So, for example, in the one that just came out uh, just before we were recorded, the NDP platform came out. And they did a, a good job of going to the parliamentary budget office and getting line items costed. But what the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy pointed out is, for a lot of those things, really missing a lot of detail on how you implement them. And that just means mm. that you, know, you, you could get there, but it's going to take you a few years, and maybe they're being a, a bit too aggressive on what they can expect. Okay, so, so we have the NDPs. Let, let's start with that, then. The NDP platform has come out on recording day. So we're recording on, on Friday, October 11th. The conservative plan won't come out until later today, so we won't be able to assess it quite as in depth. But so the NDP plan, um, it passes, but with an asterisk. Yeah, uh, well, the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy literally gives them grades and gave them in two dimensions a pass and one dimension a fail. And the, the fail was on that item I just mentioned, which is the, the implementation plan, which was lacking. On the other two items, which is on uh, you know sustainability and uh, the uh, credibility of, of the costings, they, they got a pass because you know they fit into the same framework that's been established by the current government that we want to have the deficit not so be so big that it's growing, you know, compared to the economy. So you keep right. the debt to GDP ratio coming down, and the NDP fit within that framework. Um, they had to raise a lot of new revenue to get there given their spending commitments, but uh, you know they they did make the numbers work. And so, how do the liberals stack up? So with the, we have we can't really get into the conservatives on this measure, I suppose, yet, right? But I think we should. That. But yeah, but yes, um, the liberals uh, on these measures. You know, what's, what's interesting is when you have an incumbent government. We saw this in 2015 as well, um, with the conservatives being the incumbent government then. You know, you're really uh, you're constrained by the experience of power that you realize that you know, you know, again, in contrast to what we're seeing with the NDP today. Just saying, we will have a whole new tax system ready to go in January. That's just not going to happen, and that that experience of power kind of limits what they can do. So what you see in the liberal platform is a lot of you know 
marginal step forward and, and, and keeping, keeping going what we're doing with some changes that are incremental and uh, you know, might get uh, over a few years to where you might want to go. But uh, I don't think people are looking at the liberal platform as saying, boy, there's implementation problems or uh, realism problems. You might say that they're not being ambitious enough in terms of climate change or in terms of taxation or some other items. But uh, what you see there is it totally looks like a platform from an incumbent government that realizes that governing is hard. So in some sense, either the, the liberals are under-promising and, and are disappointing us at the front end, the NDP are over-promising and may disappoint on the back end. I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> right, okay. And so and how do we see the conservatives fitting into this framework? I think it is important to talk about the conservatives because you'll note that they haven't released anything yet for the fiscal framework. They're supposed to do it later today on Friday. I, and they're doing it, you know, late in the day on Friday before Thanksgiving. This is not when you release a, something you're proud of. Yeah. And so they're, they're trying to slip one by and they're hoping it's not going to get a lot of coverage. And I, I, I think we should not allow them to get away with that. So we should really pay attention to them. And why that's important is they have been for four years talking about the horrors of deficits and that interest payments will eat our babies like it's the worst thing ever. <laughs> but yet when you look at their fiscal plan as announced so far, all the tax cuts, all the spending that they have promised, the difference between their deficits and the liberal deficits are minute. It's like a couple billion dollars. So right. all of that rhetoric of deficits will eat our babies, there's literally only a few billion dollars difference of what they would borrow versus the liberals. Except they promise as well they're going to balance the budget in 2024-2025. And the problem is there's a $16 billion hole there. They have $16 billion of promises of what they're going to do tax cuts and spending that they're going to have to get rid of in order to get to deficit zero. So sometime today we're going to find out how they close that gap, and it's not going to be pretty. Uh, well, let's talk about that then. Uh, you know, the each party has had has really some discussion of how they intend to to either raise revenue or or for that matter cut taxes. The ND, the the liberals are talking about increasing the personal deduction limit. The conservatives are talking about a universal tax cut. The NDP is talking about a wealth tax, increasing the corporate tax rate and increasing the capital gains inclusion rate. So it seems to me that there are distinct approaches here to taxation and revenue generation versus cuts. How do, how do those stack up against one another? So speaking first about the liberal proposal to expand the basic personal amount versus the conservative proposal to lower the tax rate in the first tax bracket. There's been lots of economists doing analysis of these tax cuts. And we look at those graphs, your eyeball says those things are pretty close to each other about how much families receive. There are some differences. Liberals do phase out their, the benefit of their tax cut for high earners. The conservatives don't. The liberal plan is a bit more generous to people at the bottom uh, than the conservative plan. But as a first cut, these are both just, you know, five and a half million dollar tax cuts to uh, mostly middle class families. So there's not a lot of difference there, I don't think. But where there is a serious difference between the liberals and the conservatives, is on the issue that we were seized with in the fall of 2017, which is private corporation ta taxation. Oh, yes, and I remember that well. <laughs> the conservatives are planning, are, are promising to get, to move back on the progress that was made there. So moving back in two ways, they're going to allow, again, income sprinkling. Yeah. Income sprinkling means that you can pay dividends out of a private corporation to your spouse, to your kids who weren't even involved in the corporation. You just issue them some shares and you just flush money out of the corporation to them. This is a prime tax planning technique that's used by wealthy families. So that's one thing. The other thing 
is measures for passive income. What passive income means is this is not active investments that the company is making. This is like stocks and bonds that there's parking inside a corporation. And the liberals, in the end, the final reform was that they exempted the first $50,000 of income. So that's not assets, but income. $50,000 of income, interest and dividends, are exempt from any new measure that the liberals put in place. It was only on top of that that they started to claw back uh, uh, some of the tax benefits you get for parking money inside a corporation. The conservatives said, we're going to roll all that back and just make it so that, you know, millionaires can stuff as much as they want inside private corporations and get these big tax breaks. And so that's, I think, a really different philosophy of what we ought to do. You know, my personal taste is moving and trying to push back against these tax avoidance techniques is more productive than adding higher tax brackets at the top. That, you know, when you add these higher tax brackets at the top without attending to the leakiness of the system, a lot of the, uh, you know, the tax avoidance and the fancy accounting tricks undo what you're trying to do with simply changing the tax brackets. The real action is in shutting down tax loopholes. And the, concern, the liberals took a lot of hits in getting done what they tried to get done in yeah. 2017. It was really hard earned to make a bit of progress there. And the conservatives want to roll that back. I think that's a fundamental difference in, in philosophy. The uh, the liberal communication on that plan was quite bad. I remember, I mean, it got it, it was essentially framed as a war on on doctors and lawyers and accountants, three groups you you probably don't want to pick a fight with simultaneously. I would imagine. <laughs> it, it, it was it was it was quite a battle, and uh, you know, um, it's interesting to see that that's that the conservatives went there to reverse it. Now, now on the NDP side, uh, you mentioned that they have uh, announced a lot of revenue uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, being a wealth tax, uh, changing the capital gains inclusion rate, and adding new tax brackets for high earners. Yeah, and super high earners, really, right? We're talking, what was it, over $20 million or something like that? That was for the wealth tax, yeah. For the wealth tax, yeah. Yeah, for the income taxes, it was more in the hundreds of thousands range, which, uh, you know, uh, is still pretty high up there. Sure. Um, I have different views on each of these tax measures, but to be brief, you know, on, on the wealth tax, I, I, this is going from something we don't have to something that we might have. There's a lot of legislative and implementation and how is the CRA going to define and audit these things. Those are all questions that are, you know, they actually make that private corporation tax reform look like a walk in the park. So, you know, that's going to be, it, I'm not saying that the goal is not a legitimate one that we shouldn't discuss, but just getting there quickly and easily will not be easy. So that's, you know, implementation issues with wealth tax. On the capital gains inclusion rate, that's just something you could, you could switch tomorrow if you wanted to. Yeah. And there's arguments for and against it. And then the third measure, which is the high income taxation one, you know, for me, like I said, I, I think the real action is in shutting down tax loopholes, which I should say the NDP are trying to do as well, yeah. um, more than uh, increasing tax rates at the top. Right. Okay. So, but, so the NDP, though, is also interested in, in not only... Uh, raising revenue from from high earners, but also, as you mentioned, closing tax loopholes and and addressing passive income issues. Right? I mean that that came, the, so the plan is to to increase the capital gains, uh, the part of capital gains that are taxable from what fifty to seventy five percent. Right? Exactly. But, this which, is not historically unprecedented. This is where we were until two thousand. It was seventy five percent, and then it dropped in the space of a year to two thirds, and then down to fifty percent. So we've been there before, and there are actually. Uh, some solid arguments for having a look at that capital gains inclusion rate. Um, it's something you can implement. Um, just a question of uh, whether you want to do that or not. 
it's not exactly class war. I don't, it, it just, you know, I, I remember this got, this was announced by the NDP very early on, well before the election started. I mean, it's been re-announced since, but it, it struck me that, you know, it was an extremely reasonable policy. And as you mentioned, I mean, this was policy up until the Chrétien years. In fact, it was policy during seven of the Chrétien years. Yeah, so I think it's uh, within, you know, the bounds of reasonable debate. And, uh, you know, uh, an interesting thing about capital gains income is it's, it is concentrated among high earners, but you do also have a lot of seniors who are, have some investments and do get hit by capital gains taxation, even if they're fairly modest income. Um, so it, the, the incidence of capital gains taxation isn't only on the rich. There is some middle class families who get hit a bit by it, but the concentration is quite high up the income scale. Right. Before moving on, I want to talk about affordability, and that, sure. that's part of it more generally, but very quickly first, the, the Canada Child Benefit it strikes me that this is one of those cases where there's a consensus in the country that the program has worked extremely well. It's been extremely effective. I know you have done a considerable amount of work on this, and I know that you're very modest, so I won't, I won't, uh, I won't push you into to immodesty. But uh, it, that's safe, right? I mean, the consensus is that this is effective. It's safe. Everybody wants to keep it and perhaps grow it a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true that it's safe. And, and as you mentioned, I did have some hand. Uh, the Liberals asked me back in 2014-15 to help them out a bit in designing that. So I had a, a hand with the team that was doing that. So, you know, I have a bit of a, uh, some skin in the game on this. Um, and I think uh, what we see is uh, at the time, uh, the NDP wanted to keep the conservative child child benefit regime. Um, and the conservatives obviously were happy with what they had in place back before 2015 as well. But both have now said, yep, we're going to keep it. And, and beyond that, the conservatives are out there saying, this was actually our idea. And, <laughs> and we should get the credit for it. Mr. Scheer said that last night in the French debate. And other conservatives have been saying the same thing. Now, it's, that's a bit, a bit cute, though. It's like, yeah, the conservatives did put a lot of money in the family taxation basket. And that's a good thing. I'll give them credit for that. But they had arranged it in such a way that the benefits were you know, not targeted in the same way that the liberals Canada child benefit are. So the liberals essentially rearranged that basket of money and made it such that we lowered child poverty for the past two years by one third. That's, yeah. that's one third of the way there. That's a one third farther than we're getting under the conservative arrangement. So, you know, I, 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 grant, I grant the conservatives some credit for putting some money in the basket, but I think the liberals deserve some credit here for doing it in a smarter way. Yeah, I mean, it's worth dwelling on the point for a moment. I mean, it, it does happen in Canadian politics that a, that a consensus around something emerges and everyone agrees that it's a success. And I guess one of the measures of whether or not that's true is whether or not everyone wants to claim credit for it, right? I suppose that yeah, is yeah, how you yeah. know. It's not just that Trump not to touch it. They were competing over who should get credit for it, which I thought right. was an indication that this is going to last. And, you know, hey, maybe someday we'll get there on uh, on, on climate change, too. Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's slightly encouraging that everyone at least has to pretend to care. I mean, all the contending parties at least have to at least pretend to care about climate, which is something, right? That's yeah, so they, they made an effort. The Conservatives did release a multi-page uh, document in the summer um, where they uh, made some efforts like uh, 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 that, that they thought that it mattered to voters and perhaps they thought it mattered themselves. Well, actually, let's briefly talk about that then. I mean, how, how do the climate plans intersect with the, the fiscal plans? Uh, are there any policies, promises that stand out as, as unicorns? Uh, 
I guess one, and that's that uh, the conservatives have been going around telling people in Quebec and in PC that they're going to, not going to have to pay uh, carbon taxes anymore, but the federal government carbon tax does not apply there because both BC and Quebec right. have their own system. So there's a bit of uh, uh, tomfoolery going on there. Um, the bigger thing, actually, I would say, and I'm just looking at the NDP platform this morning, and you know, they're they're, they're pitching it as the like a Green New Deal kind of thing for Canadians. I can't remember the exact title, but it invokes that kind of thing that we've seen in the United States. Uh, we've seen Elizabeth May talk about the climate change as a crisis like World War II. But what I note in both the NDP and the Green case is they haven't devoted the fiscal resources to it. If, if that's all true, think what we did in World War II. We took on a tremendous amount of debt yeah. in order to invest in maintaining the future. And then we paid off that debt in the post-war years. If it is a World War II kind of engagement that we are facing, why the heck is the Green Party saying, you know, oh, sorry, can't borrow any money? It's like saying, hey, Europe, uh, sorry the Nazis are taking over, but we can't help because we got a budget to balance. I, I think there's a big gap in their rhetoric of this uh, you know, existential moment and their bean counting, which doesn't devote the dollars to it. So I, I find that interesting that there's that gap. Yeah, well, I mean, especially since, I mean, Elizabeth May, I think, appropriately talks about a war cabinet for, for climate. I mean, it, presumably that mobilization is going to be expensive. <laughs> and Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you, you could do that. You could put huge investments into public transit, huge investments into, uh, you know, densifying our cities such that people can live closer to where they work. There are huge investments you could make if you actually did think that this was an existential thing necessitating a World War II-style uh, intervention. Um, much beyond, you know, things are going on. There is money in all these plans for public transit. There is money in all these plans for housing. But I'm saying they're incremental. Right. I mean, although I want to chase this point a little bit. I mean, it's outside my area of expertise, so, so I'm relying on you here. But the post-war years were boom years. I mean, they were years of, of massive investment in public infrastructure, massive investment in public education and housing. And I mean, there was a bit of a golden age for 20 years, give or take, right? I, could something yeah. like that be replicated through public investment? I, 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 don't, I don't care to say whether public investment was the key determination of what happened in the post-war years and whether we could replicate it now. It's most likely we're in a slower growth era now right. than we would be able to find. I don't think we're going to get back to... 5% growth like we saw in the 1950s. But what I, what I can say is that, uh, you know, with interest rates being low, the argument for holding back on public investments, especially in the face of what is being described as an existential crisis, makes me scratch my head. Let me chase that point a little bit then, because I was going to ask you about this later, but I, I'm going to bump it up. So let's talk about this, uh, the sustainability of public spending, uh, deficit spending, and the debt. I mean, this is a, a canard. Everyone is tearing at, I mean, uh, in a certain political camp, tearing at their hair, concerned that it's the end of not just the country, but the, of, of civilization because we are running a modest deficit. Uh, and yet the pushback is, it's in fact sustainable, and it's within the jet, debt to GDP ratio that, that's appropriate. So can you talk a little bit about how the plans fit within that, that framework? The way that economists think about the size of a debt is if we compare it to the size of the economy. So that's why we talk about the debt to GDP ratio. And that's important both for making sure that our debts are something that we can handle, the finances and paying the interest on the debt, 
But also, there's a moral aspect of that, which is you don't want to load your kids with a debt that is growing over time as a size of what they're able to pay. That's, uh, I think, a moral argument. Both of those lead to checking in with that debt to GDP ratio. If that debt to GDP ratio is falling over time, that means our kids are going to have a lower burden. And I think that's the right thing to do. Um, if that, that GDP, debt to GDP ratio is falling over time, that means that financially we're sustainable as well. And so uh, that's why economists look at that. And where we are right now is it has been falling. When we look at what happened with these, what's being described as massive deficits, it just makes me scratch my head. Yeah. You literally can't see it in the debt to GDP graph. You have to zoom in to like, you know, very, very close to even see a tiny bump in the debt to GDP ratio. Because the the deficits have been so small, the economy underneath it has grown bigger than the deficit has grown. And so I think that those concerns are overblown. But even more important than that is to understand the interest rate environment and what would happen if we changed. Now imagine we you know, got some green eyeshade wearing uh, uh, accountant in there who's gonna really tighten up and cut $100 billion out of one of these fiscal plans. Say the liberals are spending too much money, we're gonna cut $100 billion out of their plans. That would save us $100 billion of debt. But you know what that actually frees up? That frees up $1.6 billion of foregone interest payments. Now $1.6 billion of interest, that sounds like a lot of money perhaps, but that represents about 1% increase in the uh, in, in transfers to the provinces. Right. So that's a one-year increase. So by work, imagine how much work it would take and how much pain you might cause to chop $100 billion out of one of these fiscal plans. The reward for that is you get like a very small increase one time in you know transfers of provinces or a very, very small tax, kind of like $50 a person. Um, so what I'm saying is that when we think about the opportunity cost of paying a bit more in interest relative to the size of our economy, it's actually pretty small. And so the parties are cast, I mean, certainly the liberals are doing this and the NDP is doing it as well. They're casting deficit spending as an investment. So the theory being that, look, you, you deficit spend a dollar and in fact you get two dollars back because you grow the economy. And, and so therefore it's sustainable because the debt to GDP ratio is such that you're better off spending that deficit dollar than, than cutting it. Uh, so let's let's zoom in on that point specifically. I mean, looking at the the party's platforms, who who is the best investment plan for deficit spending? You're right that that is the argument that is made, and there is some basis to it. If you look at what the liberal plan post 2015 did relative to what was before it, you saw a big new 10-year national housing strategy. You saw uh, a big improvement and expansion of public transit funding to, uh, to provinces and municipalities. And so there were some really substantial changes there that have resulted from the fact that we're spending you know, uh, uh, some money in, in, on, on the deficit. And so those are you know, long-run investments that potentially can pay off with, with big returns. And so that's a legitimate argument. On the other side, you hear people say, well, a lot of this spending is just on current consumption, that we're just you know, uh, 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 spending it today and it's not an investment in the future if we're running a deficit and not investing in those kinds of things like transit or, or housing. Yeah. And even there, though, you can legitimately talk about investments. One of the things, back to the Canada Child Benefit, like we're talking uh, uh, for families in modest income, we're talking like these these checks are big. It's like $500 a month. If you're like yeah. a single mom with two kids, you're getting like $1,200 a month from this yeah. thing. 
you imagine what kind of difference that's going to make in those kids' lives. You are creating future citizens there that are going to participate fully and feel like they can do anything in this country because they got a good start in life. And so yeah. I, I'd be very happy to defend that as an investment in the future as well. And that's the kind of thing we're doing by running a deficit that is so modest that it's still shrinking debt as a share of the economy. Now, let's talk about very quickly sustainability, though. So one of the pushbacks is, OK, that's fine with low interest rates. It's fine. We're not in a recession. The tax base is, is safe. What happens if that were to turn? What happens in that case? That's uh, fair criticism because everyone always likes to talk about the 1995 budget and Paul Martin, come hell or high water, he was going to balance that thing. And that's uh, that's been seared into the memory of those of us who are old enough to remember it anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that it's was a commentator. Was, it's a com it's a commentator of a certain age that I see making this point. By the way, I mean it is it is people who seem to have come of age in the '90s who are putting are, who are hammering on this point the hardest. It, it, it certainly does seem to have that pattern. I think people are fighting the last battle, and it's it's clear because if you look at today's debt, in order to get back to where we were in terms of debt in 1995. You would have to add $800 billion to our federal debt. Now, you might think these $20 billion deficits being run by Mr. Trudeau are, are nasty, but you'd have to run 40 years of those to get back up to $800 billion. Um, so it's just not even close to getting there. And then once you added that $800 billion of debt, we still wouldn't be back in that 1995 situation because today's interest rates are in the range of 1.5 to 2%. Back then, we were in the range of 9 to 10%. And so when you look at interest payments as a share of the economy, the interest payments on federal debt, we've gone from a range of 6 or 7% of the economy going into paying interest back in the 90s. That was, that was bad. Now we're at under 1%. It's the lowest it's been in over 50 years. So we, the interest on the debt is the lowest it's been in 50 years. And that's now under what we've seen in the past four years. So the argument that interest payments are going to eat our babies is simply... Uh, not what we see in the data. Yeah, I mean, I find this point particularly interesting because, uh, I mean, I I came of age a little, it, it probably in the 2000s rather than the 90s. I mean, I was born in 84. I, I remember the discourse in the early 90s, though. I remember the cuts, too. And it, in some, to some extent, we're, we're just now returning to a place where we can address those cuts. I mean, it seems that people forget how, how significant they were and, and how how deeply um, the, the liberals had to commit to retrenching the welfare state. And in some senses, we're just returning to, to uh, a decent level of public spending. That's an important point, is when you look at the level of federal spending in the economy, it's really not increased an awful lot. <laughs> right. It's been maybe a half point, depending on how you measure it, three quarters of a point of GDP increase from the liberals versus the conservatives, gone from somewhere around 16% to somewhere around 17%. For all the rhetoric we've heard, uh, uh, you know, it's a fairly modest increase and it's still much below the level we saw in the 1990s. Now, importantly, back in the 1990s, um, we also had uh, a huge share of the economy, 6 or 7%, going to interest payments. And that was bad. We don't want to get there. Yeah. But what I want to say is, you know, we should uh, uh, take a look around in the environment we have. We, we did some work over the past 20 years, and we need to acknowledge that when we make a plan for the future. Well, let's, let's close out on, on that, let's plan for the future. Now, affordability is one of the major frames of this election alongside climate, and every party has, has some affordability plan of some sense. The NDP 
quite an aggressive one. They talk about, for instance, among other things, pharmacare and dental coverage uh, and eliminating interest on student loans. The Greens talk about free tuition. The Liberals talk about some version of pharmacare and, and cell phone and lowering cell phone bills. The Conservatives talk about tax credits. Uh, when you're assessing the bottom line of affordability, parties are trying to make everyone's life more affordable. Who's coming out ahead in that argument? No one. <laughs> no one, okay. I, I, I think uh, uh, when I looked at it as, as an economist, I, I really scratched my head at this affordability discussion uh, in that, you know, the consumer inflation has been 2% for the last 25 years, it hasn't really changed. So the idea that things are getting more expensive across our whole basket of goods is simply not reflected in the data. And so what the way I choose to interpret this concerns about affordability is not on the expenditure side, but it's on the income side. The people are finding that there's not a lot of, uh, of, of flexibility in their budget, that they're running out of money on their income side to meet the necessary household expenditures. So what I think is uh, the right way to look at this is that these concerns about affordability are more about the tightness of family budgets and that people's incomes perhaps aren't rising in the way that they want them to. I think that's a legitimate concern, but that gets to how you want to address this kind of thing. And to me, addressing concerns about affordability shouldn't be about micro-targeted tax credits to you know, afford uh, uh, pencils or something, uh, which is the kind of thing that we've seen. Uh, instead, it, sh it should be an approach to grow the economy and ensure that our overall tax and transfer system is supporting incomes for those who are struggling. And uh, that should be the focus rather than particular items in your basket that you want to have a big announcement and say, we're going to lower the cost of pencils. That's just not the way to address that. Those are, 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 are trivial things. And the right way to address it is the big picture, making sure that incomes are growing. Now, I see that how that applies to tax credits, even to, for instance, the cell phone. I mean, it has been called a populist move to target cell phone bills, and I think that's probably true. Also, I think that problem is, is a competition problem that, that is much bigger than just affordability. But um, what about national programs like dental care and pharmacare? Now, uh, there's a big debate over, over who's got the better pharmacare plan. It's largely between the NDP Greens and Liberals. The Conservatives want to focus on, on small tweaks to to gaps in coverage. But how about pharmacare and dental? I mean, is there, first of all, can we do these things? Can we afford them? Can we make them work? And do we, can we see them as an investment, in fact? So in broad strokes, absolutely we could do these things. We, meaning in general society, uh, I, if we wanted to do dental care, we could do it. If we wanted to do pharmacare, we can do it. The question gets into, you know, how and how fast. And the concern I have looking at the platforms is uh, the implementation plans again. I know that's like inside the Queensway kind of nerdy thing, like, oh, how are you going to do that? But this is actually really important because most of these programs are delivered by provincial governments. Yeah. And even, even the NDP has said the way they're going to do it is allow provinces to implement it, and they're going to shovel money at the provinces. Now, the thing is, if you look around provincial legislatures right now, a lot of conservatives out there, whether it's Doug Ford in Ontario or Jason Kenney in Alberta. So if you're Prime Minister Jagmeet Singh in 2020 and you're sitting at a, you know, a federal provincial meeting with these premiers and you're saying, hey, Doug Ford, what kind of pharmacare plan do you want to do? Doug Ford is not going to be really interested in that conversation. So it's certainly not going to get it done for you. It's like you know, Doug Ford's not going to drop this whole agenda to try to make Jagmeet Singh's life easier. Sure. And so what you deal with is 
you got to work with a, a, a plan that integrates federal financing with provincial delivery, and that's going to involve, you know, easing it in over time, making sure that it's integrated properly with the various provincial health systems, and, and getting it done. It is, however, important to make it a priority. That's a good thing, I think, that having the NDP Greens and Liberals all pushing on this is, I, I hope, in whatever parliament we elect, that uh, there's a lot of push for these things. I think it's a good idea to expand social insurance in general. And uh, I think having them push to make it a top priority will help us get there faster. I'm just a bit skeptical about getting it done in 2020, but I think you only get it done in 2025 if you start working on it as a top priority in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a strong supporter, of, I mean, certainly of, of Pharmacare, for instance. I, I mean, I think any national health insurance program uh, that is truly meant to be national needs to have pharma and, and ideally dental and vision as well. But I mean, this presents, I think, the fundamental problem of the federation, which is that we have a constitution that assigns a lot of income power to the federal government, not sufficient income power to the provinces, but awful. But it does assign them responsibilities for health and transportation and social programming. And now we have the federal government uh, finding its way into provincial jurisdiction through spending power. And provinces who want to try to abuse that. I mean, I, do you think we could could we imagine a national program negotiated with the provinces in which the the provinces didn't try to take the federal government to the bank? It's you know it's it, it's always going to be tricky to figure out how to do it because remember, different provinces already have different programs that exist. Quebec right. already has a uh, a mixed private public pharmacare program in BC. We have coverage for kind of catastrophic uh, 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 pharmaceutical needs. And if you have a big drug need, even if you're higher income, you'll get some of that covered. That's yeah. already existed in BC. I don't know what happens in other provinces. So as you're trying to, you know, figure this out, you either end up giving asymmetric checks because, you know, oh, Quebec already has something. We won't cut them into this thing. You could try that. <laughs> that doesn't work yes. so well. Everyone no. wants the same check. So then you have to, like send the same check to everyone, and it just gets really, really complicated. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get there, but I do think that when we see in the election campaign different parties dunking on each other for how quickly they're going to get there, I'd rather hear them say, you know, this is going to be our top priority, number one thing in the next parliament. I think that's a more useful intervention than bragging about, you know, which part of January 2020 they're going to have it all done. Okay, on balance then, we, we've decided, I think, and I suspect, despite what a few cynical pundits have to say, this election does in fact matter and there are differences between the parties. There are differences in the platforms and the priorities they put forward. And even, you know, these platforms, there's a hundred promises in these things. Yeah. One thing I observed post-2015 is after Parliament is elected, you then get to see what their real priorities are because yes. they pick up some things and they don't pick up others. Uh, to give an example, uh, right away uh, when the Trudeau government was elected, they put top cabinet ministers, top bureaucrats on the issue of refugees, and they got it more or less done in the time yeah. frame, a bit, bit longer time frame than they had promised, but when Syrian refugees arrived and, and uh, Canada has changed because of it. Similarly, they put resources and top people on getting the Canada Child Benefit done. What they didn't do uh, was allocate the same resources to electoral reform. Oh yes, I remember. You might remember that one, Mr. <laughs> I Oster. remember it very well.
And so you just you you only have 24 hours in a day, and we saw what their priorities were. They were children, and they were uh, improving our our refugee and immigration system. Other stuff kind of slipped, and you saw that in 2018-19, where all of the resources are going to NAFTA renegotiation, yeah. and perhaps not enough on dealing with SNC Lavalin and other things that they let fester. So again, the government has to have some priorities. They only have so many people they can put on files. And so that's what we're going to see when a parliament is elected is what will be revealed is out of those 100 promises, which ones are the ones that are actually going to be top of the agenda. So that's one of the things I listen for when I listen to the various parties is not just what's on paper in your platform, but what's, what are they telling me is their top priorities? Because that gives me an idea of what will actually get done. Well, let me close on this question, and I, I let me let me warn you that it's a bit of a trap, so you can try to wiggle out of it. But say we return a hung parliament, and we end up with a minority government. What's spending plot? What's uh, spending promise number one that gets negotiated out of out of such an arrangement? Huh? Spending promise number one. I, I could imagine agreement among the. Imagine it was a progressive coalition. Yeah. Of, Liberals, NDP, Greens, or yeah. some flavor. I'm assuming that. Uh, you, you could imagine on some of the revenue measures that have been proposed by the NDP and Green, the Liberals could find favor. Uh, you could imagine on uh, green infrastructure, public transit investments, there's a lot of uh, commonalities. And similarly on housing. The national housing strategy is fairly aggressive, but uh, you know, I bet you could find some support for expanding it. Um, I didn't mention... Pharmacare. And again, the reason there is this is a, a, a long, drawn-out federal-provincial process. You could throw some more money at it, but if you did, it would just be putting money in Doug Ford's pocket. And I'm not sure that's the right approach to make it faster. Um, but that's what I would see. In a minority parliament, you could imagine some revenue measures and some uh, more investment in housing and transit and other kinds of green investment. Well, thank you very much. This has been such a fun conversation. People will be listening to this uh, just a few days before the election. So let me first of all say thank you very much to, to you, Kevin Milligan, for coming on and chatting with me about this. And thanks to everyone for listening. And you will have a chance to vote in advance polling this week. And on Election Day on October 21st, I strongly encourage you to do that. It is fast. It is easy. It matters. So thank you very much to you, Kevin. Thanks. It was my pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you again after the election with um, some, some takes on what's happened and what's next. Thanks, everyone.